Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Nature Tripping. We're out and about in the upper Calder Valley again, visiting some of our old haunts. And we're quite high up the hillside um, at the level where there's old farms. So probably old farmhouses and cottages about 200 years old, a big old stone barn, and there's some hay meadows full of flowers. Up a bit is the moor and the rockier areas. It's late May. Hmm. Breezy day, a bit cloudy, but I think we're going to escape being rained on. And we're surrounded by um, swallows flying around in the air, catching insects, and I think they're nesting in one of these old buildings somewhere, aren't they? Yes. As you can probably also hear, we've got some ducks in a garden right next to us. We're joined today by Clara Dawson, who's an academic from the University of Manchester. And she's researching poetry about birds in the Romantic and Victorian periods. Welcome, Clara. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself a bit more and say a bit more about what you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, So I'm doing research on, on poetry about birds, as you say, in that period of the Industrial Revolution really is a way to to think about um, the history of our relationship to the natural world and birds particularly. So it's really exciting to have the opportunity to to bring these poems back into the natural world, um, to set them alongside the birdsong that inspired the poets I'm working on and, and to think about how they might speak to us today. So what draws you to poetry written at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th centuries? I feel like that period really set the scene for our own era. And I think the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it's, it's the cusp of this huge change from a predominantly rural way of life into urbanisation, industrialization, And I think that's really led us up to our own moment where we've got um, cities and, and, and industry very much dominating the globe. And I feel we're, we're really at, almost at the other end of that process at this this tipping point where the natural world feels very precarious. Um, And I think the poetry that's written in that period, it's both celebratory, um, but also elegiac at the same time. So I think it's it's able to show us a way of of taking deep pleasure in the other forms of life that, that surround humans. But I think the poets are also registering the destructive elements that are creeping in with that way of life, the the kind of attitudes and and the activities that have created our own precarious situation. And I think um, really mirrors my own contradictory feelings about where we are right now in the Calder Valley, which I think, you know, people come out from from Manchester and Leeds and, and we think of this as being very much rural. And there's so much richness and diversity here and so many plant and animal species supporting each other. But I think, you know, at the same time, grouse shooting and farming and going back um, into the 19th century, you know, kind of factories, um, early factories here, and, and it's also been stripped of so much as well. Mm. So I think there is this tension between the richness of what we have, but also what we're losing at the same mm. time and what we've lost already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can see that meadow there is full of flowers, but not many are around here. Mainly they don't have flowers because of industrial agriculture. It must be interesting looking at these poems from 
couple of hundred years ago, their view of the world and their experience of the world and the natural world will have been so different from ours. I mean, I know there's this shifting baseline syndrome where mm. it's very hard for us to understand what we've lost. Because here, around here there would have been far more species and more biodiversity, but sheer numbers of birds or other wildlife or plants or animals would have been greater. Yeah, that kind of knowledge or experience can disappear within a, a generation. Our parents and grandparents and their ancestors would have experienced so much more intense variety and numbers when they, you know, when they were young. Yeah, and I think this is where poetry has a really important role to play imaginatively in our relationship to the climate crisis, because I think it, it is this repository of what's lost, but it, but it does kind of connect us to a vision of how the world used to be, but potentially could be again. Yeah. And I wonder if that's a nice moment to perhaps read from Charlotte Smith's poem, The Swallow, which I think gives us a lovely example of that richness. Um, yeah. It's a poem that she wrote in, in 1807, and she was a poet who was very much steeped in observations of, of the natural world. She wrote a book on natural history of, of birds, so uh, it's very much a poem written from her uh, observed perspective. The gorse is yellow on the heath. The banks with speedwell flowers are gay. The oaks are budding, and beneath the hawthorn soon will bear the wreath, the silver wreath of May. The welcome guest of settled spring, the swallow too is come at last. Just at sunset, when thrushes sing, I saw her dash with rapid wing and hailed her as she passed. Come, summer visitant, attach to my reed roof your nest of clay, and let my ear your music catch, low twittering underneath the thatch at the grey dawn of day. So she's got a relationship with that swallow, hasn't she? Absolutely. I think it's one of the reasons that I, I love the poem, but I think also the way that she sets it up. I feel it's a poem where everything's in its rightful place, and, and it's quite a stately poem. I think in that first verse, she starts each line with the. So we have the gorse, the banks, the oaks, the hawthorn, and I think the poem feels quite quite solid, and quite grounded. full. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's a very rich and dense and interconnected scene, and... I like the idea that, that time in the poem is experienced through the cycle of the seasons and certain plants arriving and birds arriving. And I think this is a, it's a life before the advent of clock time that comes with the Industrial Revolution where time is measured out in, in telegrams winging along wires or, or factory bells tolling out shifts or, or the pistons of roaring trains. And I think the, the time in the poem, the timescape of the poem is, is much gentler and slower. And, and I think, um, you know, one of the, the reasons that I think this is such a lovely experience to come out here is because it, it, it kind of puts us back into that, that timescape pre-industry. Yeah. If you're using nature as your clock, then you're more connected with nature, aren't you? Mm. You're listening out for things, you're looking for things to ground yourself in where you are in the calendar. Mm. And that just doesn't happen. I mean, it does happen to some extent, doesn't it? Like, we love the return of the swallows. Yeah. It's the 
beginning of the summer, isn't it, mm. when that happens? And when, when it doesn't happen, it's distressing for us. Yeah, I know. And I think I love that she just conveys that quite simple pleasure of that arrival. Um, but it's a thread that really connects us through hundreds of years, actually, to this human experience yeah. of waiting for the, the spring. Um, and I think for her, that connection, as you say, if we, if we kind of reconnect to the natural world in that way, I think it's something that she portrays really well in this poem through the way that she uses rhyme um, and sound. And she gives us that image of the wreath of Hawthorne. Um, and I think it's central to the way that she sees the world as, a, as a, almost like an interwoven wreath, that she's um, you know, not the, necessarily the central figure, but, but one figure of many in this assembly of beings. And so the poem itself begins to interweave those words, that like we get sing and wing being connected with spring, and then the wreath of flowers is connected to the heath. And then finally, the way that the swallow song becomes interwoven with her home. Mm. And I find that gesture of her hospitality so moving, that kind of, you know, use my roof to build your nest, mm. then let my ear, your music catch. So she's not demanding something from the bird. It, it's the kind of relationship of, of mutual exchange. Yeah, it's making me think of the last episode of Nature Tripping, where we talked all about wildlife and biodiversity and graveyards. The land around the church used to be a meadow, Mm. didn't originally have gravestones in it. Everybody was just buried, but there was a hay crop. And now graveyards are some of the last remaining remnants of species-rich meadow because they haven't been mm. uh, changed by industrial agriculture. We, for many centuries, worked with nature and it benefited both parts, you know. We were able to grow grass and food and nature was able to thrive in those environments as well because of the way we were managing the land. But I think what this poem perhaps offers us is that is, it, is that a different mindset to that kind of yeah. capitalist industrialist mentality which sees I think the the land and other beings as, as resources simply mm. for our use rather than um, you know something that we might share with with other beings. Mm. Kathy I know you were saying the barn is itself a kind of probably an 18th century barn so it's almost like we have to come back to these old buildings mm. as, as well which are still providing homes for swallows. She acknowledges that she's giving something to the swallow, mm. that particular swallow as well as that, that swallow giving her great joy. Mm. And I love that description just watching the swallows right now as well you know dash with rapid wing yeah. it really captures the way that they they move through the sky um, darting along and also that low twittering <laughs> we can hear now. That's classic. Twittery swallow. Yeah, that's great. So we've got a little bit of um, jet engine in the background, maybe juxtaposed against the twitterings of the occasional swallow um, and we've moved around the corner a little bit because uh, one of the local dogs started to uh, bark 
but Clara. She, I'll turn to Wordsworth. I did want to read Charlotte Smith first because I think she's an important yeah. precursor to Wordsworth yes. who isn't always acknowledged. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Wordsworth actually learns a lot and takes a lot from her in terms of that approach to nature. Um, of course, as we know, the, the literary canon is very much formed by, by men, so I think she's a, a poet who hasn't really been given her due place in, in the romantic canon. And um, I did want to read a poem by Wordsworth as well, but I thought it was nice to start with Charlotte Smith just to recognise her importance in that tradition of romantic poetry. And the poem I was going to read by Wordsworth was written a few years earlier. It's, it's um, written in 1798 in the Lake District, where, of course, he is based. Um, but I think he has a similar sense of, of richness and plenitude in his poem that hopefully will be conveyed when I read these three verses from his poem, Lines Written in Early Spring. I know we're late spring, so it's not quite a, a perfect match, but I think it captures that richness. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sat reclined. In that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind. To her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran. And much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. The birds around me hopped and played, their thoughts I cannot measure. But the least motion which they made, it seemed a thrill of pleasure. So you get the sense that he's maybe sitting in his garden after lunch. Mm just having a very uh, mindful moment with the wildlife around him mm. and observing the smallest movements mm. of the birds. What I find inspiring about, about the poem is the impression of grace that, that arrives with the bird song, that it's not something that we, we deserve, as you say, it, just might, it might come to us just as we're sitting in our, our gardens and it brings that sweetness and pleasure. But I think that the richness and grace of, of birdsong is contrasted with his awareness of a, a more destructive element that's creeping in um, from humanity. I think referencing there the, the oppressive politics and the exploitation of the poor that characterised that period of the Industrial Revolution. So I think on the one hand, he's um, offering us this possibility of a, a deep connection with nature, a link through the human soul, but he also recognises that when the way that humans treat each other is exploitative, what man has done to man, that's going to extend to the natural world too. And um, I think that is something that people in lockdown became more aware of, the, the gift of birdsong, actually, Definitely. once the kind of human noises started to die away. Mm. Um, that sense of the, the pleasure that we might gain if we, if we pull back. <laughs> mm. So I think in, in lockdown, people became more explicitly aware of how valuable birdsong was. Everyone sought out places wherever they were to go and listen to birdsong. People getting up early to listen to the dawn chorus who'd never done that before. And, mm. um, I've experienced it recently um, visiting some other parts of the country 
where I think the biodiversity is richer. So visited a small town in a very rural part of Wales on the, on the border. I was sitting in the garden of uh, the house I was staying at and it was evening. There were swallows flying overhead. There were sparrows chattering away, blackbirds, jackdaws. There was a field beyond the garden wall. There was lots going on. Warblers, bees on the bee hotel. There was a little pond with pond skaters. And I was surrounded by life. And I did have this kind of sense of well-being. To me, it's about feeling calm, feeling connected to nature and feeling happier and more positive. Yeah, and I think even if you don't necessarily believe in a the religious concept of a soul, I think Wordsworth's idea of you know the link that runs through the soul, mm. that it's something that enters in so deeply mm. to us. Mm. So it's a visceral, it's a visceral connection to the whole world or the, the natural world around us or feeling part of the mm. natural world. And I think what I feel in both Charlotte Smith and Wordsworth that the poems remind us to open ourselves up to it. I mean, I think both of those experiences in the poem come from observation, they come from curiosity. It's putting us, ourselves back in that place in a way and um, the respect in that poem that, that Wordsworth's recognising that he can't measure everything about the birds, that he's he's just enjoying their, their motion. And I think that ambiguity almost of the, that he's imagining pleasure in the motion of the birds, that they take pleasure in their own mm. song as well as us taking pleasure in it. Mm. And I know that's, something of a debate within ornithology but whether everything birds do is is to do with instinct and evolutionary advantage and reproduction or whether birds do just sing for pure joy and I know that's sometimes dismissed as a, a human projection but I've always thought it seems quite unfair to assume that only humans can yeah. experience joy that that birds are not just mechanical beings <laughs> responding to these instinctual drives. This paradigm that we're in at the moment we've, we've gone down this other way of thinking where we've we've decided that we're the only ones that have mm. feelings that are worth anything mm. and that and that's kind of I suppose um, given us permission to treat other things badly mm. and I think that's where poetry again opens up that imaginative space um, whereby we can start to conceive of these other possibilities. I think the way that poets do register things that are going on. And, and of course, in the Romantic period, poetry and science were very connected. They weren't seen as separate disciplines. And that um, the kind of attention to other beings um, created the framework for scientific thinking. Um, and Christina Rossetti, who's another poet I wanted to, to bring to the podcast today, also has that quality of, of observation and curiosity, but very much for the, the smaller beings in life. And she's quite different to the, the grand sublime of some of the romantic poets who were climbing the Alps or the mountains in the Lake District and you know writing about storms and lakes. And like a, a number of women poets in the mid-Victorian period, she's much more confined to um, the domestic sphere. She lives in London in the city. Her experience of nature was often through visits to London Zoo, but she writes about things like strawberry plants or caterpillars or slugs or sparrows or robins that the small creatures that are more part of the day-to-day -day life in the city so I think we do get quite a different relationship to the natural world than, than the one that we see in Charlotte Smith um, and Wordsworth. 
Um, so I thought I'd read one of her children's poems, um, and this is from the 1860s. Um, I will say the Victorians had a slightly odd obsession with dead birds, if you've ever seen <laughs> the famous Victorian Christmas cards with the dead robin. Uh, so you may not think this is a, a poem that you'd want to read your child, but <laughs> that is the, the original audience for it. So the collection is called Sing Song, um, and the poem doesn't, it doesn't have a title. It's very short, this one. Dead in the cold, a song-singing thrush. Dead at the foot of a snowberry bush. Weave him a coffin of rush. Dig him a grave where the soft mosses grow. Raise him a tombstone of snow. fascinating for the way it's balanced between this quite bleak image of a dead cold thrush and it is quite bleak but it also has a softer side to it so we've got this description of the thrush being buried next to a bush tucked into a bed of soft mosses so it's actually in some ways there's a sweetness and almost even a sentimentality to this poem so it might be a, a way of teaching children to think about about death but that song singing thrush to me sounds quite lively. It doesn't sound dead. So interesting, I think, at this mid-century period, a natural world that's caught between liveliness and death, I, I think is quite telling of the, the general situation of the, the times. And I think that contradiction that I mentioned earlier, the, the kind of richness of the natural world being intercut by this destructive element, the kind of the death versus the life, I, I think is something she's really grappling with. And, I did get slightly obsessed with this poem, and although it's very short, it has quite long tentacles into the wider context of what's happening to plants and animals in the 19th century. So I got kind of obsessed with why the snowberry bush. And when I did some research into that, I found that the snowberry bush was imported from the US into the UK in the early 19th century. So it's part of this you know, vast imperial movement of, of flora and fauna um, across the globe but it was particularly discovered in the Louisiana Purchase when indigenous tribes, the Chaddo and the Choctaw, were dispossessed of their land. Um, so it's very connected with imperialism. I think also the coffins I thought were interesting because being made of mahogany, and we know that Cuban mahogany forests were devastated by the Victorians. So um, I think on, on the one hand, it's very much a local poem just about the thrush, but it also has these tentacles into um, the imperial roots of, of trade and of transportation of, of flora and fauna. She wouldn't have known about which Well, we don't know. Would she have known? It's kind Snowberry of bushes were yeah. non-native. Yeah. Absolutely, because they would have been a fashionable thing. Yeah. They would have been planted in parks. In, you know, they were collected by plant collectors, weren't they? Um, they weren't there before. It's a lot like the holly and the ivy, which have been there forever. They, they would have been a novelty... They would have been interesting. They would have been covered in white, little white berries in the winter. I think it's interesting. The berries are eaten by birds, but they're poisonous to humans. Yeah. I think that's quite a nice detail. Yeah. It's making me wonder how the song thrush died. Mm, that's a good question, actually. Um, because this is a period where um, collecting birds 
is a huge craze, taking their eggs from nests, those, shooting All those them. cabinets full of stuffed birds. Absolutely. But it, it could have just died of hypothermia in the winter. <laughs> yeah. Starvation of hypothermia. Because <laughs> it was quite cold yeah. back then in the winters. The winters were colder. <laughs> but I think people's experience of birds would have often been through taxidermy, Yeah. for example. So I, I think it is an interesting context to think, to almost remind the child your experience of this bird is is a, a dead bird. Yeah. But actually it was alive. And it's, I think, again, she does that through the, the rhyme. We've got the thrush bush and rush interconnected and the, the mosses grow in the tombstone of snow. I think there's this feeling of circularity to the poem, like that cycle of life where the bird decays into the ground to, to feed the, bu- the bush, which then feeds further birds. Mm. So it's almost as if she's, again, contrasting this bleaker, colder um, relationship with nature, which is where you, you shoot a bird and you stuff it, to something more animated and, and livelier. Do you think there's a wider metaphor there maybe <clears throat> what we're doing to nature the thrush is dead yeah and i think in those connections with the the mahogany and the the snowberry I mean, these imperial roots of extraction and profit and i think it, it speaks to a global interconnection and a kind of entanglement of birds with humans whether that's for good or bad so in charlotte smith we we get the positive version of that entanglement the mutual exchange and, and this i think is is much more um rapacious mm. exploitation yeah. yeah exploitative that she's she's perhaps foregrounding 1860s we would have been in the middle of the industrial revolution then wouldn't we yeah so here would have been teeming with mills smoke pollution that's why the, all these buildings are black because of the smoke from that exact time yeah so we can still see the remnants yeah so we've been hearing the swallows quite a lot whilst we've been recording this. So the swallows are flying around with a really long pointy wings and really long tail feathers. And if you're lucky enough to see it quite close up, it's almost that electric blue, yeah. isn't it, the, the head and the, the back. And the reason they come here for the summer is for the food and for all the insects. And for that they need you know, a profusion of flowering plants, damp areas, variety of sources of food for the insects. And we're talking about um, shifting baseline earlier. It reminded me not about swallows, but house martins Mm. also come back for the summer. When I was young, so this will be something that a younger generation who's living where I used to live, South Nutfield, won't remember, but when I was young and lived in South Nutfield, there were house martins making nests under the gutters of the house that I lived in. Um, and then they disappeared. And I think the reason why they disappeared is because their nest building material, clay. Mm, wet mud. Wet mud. Yeah. There was a field opposite my house uh, that was wet and clayey, watery, marshy. Um, and it was bought for housing development. Some nice new houses went up. And the house martins never came back because they couldn't, they had nothing to build the nest with. Mm. And it's all those little microaggressions against nature that have happened over, the, over our lifetimes and the mm. previous centuries that you don't really notice. Mm. And I think that's where, you know, I'd hope something like if you read the Charlotte Smith poem might inspire someone to 
install a swift nesting box, yeah. for example, that yeah. idea of, you know, have my roof yes. <laughs> to make your nest yeah. of clay. Yeah. Um, and the reward that comes from that, mm. um, you know, I think that, again, that mutual exchange is, is something we could get back to. Mm. So I think, as you say, that the younger generation haven't experienced that, but they could. Yes. The potential is still there. Yeah. I think hearing the swallow song along with the jet was quite an interesting moment for me as well. I think that that tension between the the noise of industry mm. that, um, of course, you know, jets were not around in Wordsworth's <laughs> day, but I think his sense of something that is going to interrupt, his sense of a of a, a darker element that that's coming in, I think, is is there in the poem, mm. and I, I think that's where I see the connection with our own era. Mm. That. that that attitude where we just make as much noise and, and, and take up all the space and, and don't think about how we share the world with these other beings. So it's the following day. We've come to the local woods, uh, which are part of our, our park. And the weather is, I'd say, a bit changeable at the moment. You can probably hear the pattering of raindrops on the leaves. We are going to listen to some more poetry today from the beginning of the 1900s. Is that right, Clara? Yeah, I wanted to read a poem by uh, Edward Thomas, who's a great nature poet of the English countryside. I know we were hoping to hear some some rooks today, which we'll talk about later, but he has a a lovely short poem um, about rooks nesting. Perhaps I should just start with reading that. Um, It's called Thor. Over the land, freckled with snow, half-thawed, the speculating rooks at their nests cawed and saw from elm tops, delicate as flower of grass, what we below could not see, winter pass. And the poem is written in 1915, and I think there's an ambiguity here as to the setting of the poem, because I think you could imagine a group of friends walking through the English countryside, looking up at elm trees. But Edward Thomas fought in the trenches in the First World War. He was, he was killed, in fact, in the First World War. 
And I think given the date of the poem, 1915, you can almost imagine a group of soldiers in the trenches. And mm. he says what we below yeah. could not see. And I think that gives the poem really an added poignancy, that sense of the, the beauty in the poem being something that's carved out of the horror and the violence of the trenches. Yes. But I also love what he does with the, the sounds in the poem. Um, and we get these words like freckled, speculating, delicate. The consonants are quite clattery. It's almost the, mimicking that, that chattery conversation that the rooks have. But I think they're quite delicate consonants as well. And I think to me, it's a poem also about precarity like the rooks are having to decide like when to nest and um when to breed and trying to read the markers of the seasons um so on the one hand it, in, it's a, a classic image of the english countryside the rooks and the elms but i think there's also that sense of yeah precarity i guess in 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 the poem um which i think really links to what we were thinking about today because we came to find rooks and mm. the rooks are not here. Mm. So I've recorded in these woods during the winter months and the rooks have been using these trees, which we're standing in a beech wood at the moment, to roost in. So if you come just as day is breaking or at the other end of the day just as dusk is coming upon us it it was very noisy in here the rooks are all returning to roost to settle down for the night and then in the morning they all have a big conversation again and then fly off into mm. the fields and actually we were interested in well this whole kind of passage of rooks from their roost site to the fields and then back again so one evening we went up over the tops to above the woods. There's rough pasture above the woods. And we waited for about 20 minutes. And then we started to see rooks fly across the fields back into the woods. And you got that real sense of this is how the crow flies. Yeah. This is where the phrase, as the crow flies, they were in a straight line back to the woods for the night. It was one of those kind of wildlife moments where you mm. kind of understand a bit more about a creature's behaviour by going out and yeah. looking for it and seeing it doing its thing. Mm. And I like that line in the poem where he says, what we below could not see. And I think that kind of observation takes you out of your own human perspective yes. into the perspective of the bird and what it what it sees yes. and how it reads the landscape in a very different way to, to us. I knew we'd be speaking to you about Victorian writing and poetry. Mm. And I found a book that I know was my grandfather's and it's a book of nature writings called Wild Life, so two separate words, Wild Life in a Southern County by Richard Jeffries. And it's, uh, yeah, some essays about nature. And I think he is recounting tales from where he grew up, which was Wiltshire. So mm -hmm. a different part of the world. But he's got a couple of chapters in here, all about rooks. Mm. And much like the poetry, it gives you this insight into Britain's previous countryside. And elms are the favourite trees for building in. Oak and ash are also used, but where there are sufficient elms, they seem generally preferred. And he goes on to talk about 
The reason for that, he believes, is because elms are tallest, so they afford the rooks the best protection from predators. And he also says something really interesting about how rooks will suddenly leave a tree, not come back and nest in it. And it's only later that the humans discover the tree is diseased. Mm. The elm is dead or is dying. And that makes its branches brittle. So while whilst it may, may be okay just to roost in, if you actually want to build a nest in it, mm. not a good idea. Yeah. Branches might snap. Yeah. Um, it's like that word speculate that Edward Thomas uses, the speculating rooks, like the, the kind of knowledge that the rooks have that we might have missed. Yeah. And we've lost all those elms from the landscape in yes. England, haven't we? Yes. All those nesting sites for rooks have gone. So they're now having to use for what them, I suppose, is a rather inferior tree, <laughs> a beach. <laughs> they're making do with the, the remaining habitat that is here. Oh, here comes the rain. <laughs> so there's a, another really kind of evocative section in one of the chapters about rooks and their returning to the roost. He says, they stretch from here to the roosting trees fully a mile and a half, literally as the crow flies, and backwards, the opposite direction, the line reaches as far as the eye can see. It is safe to estimate that the aerial army's line of march extends over quite five miles in one unbroken corpse. This formation is more apparent from an elevation, as it were, up among them than from below. And looking along their line towards the distant wood, it is like glancing under a black canopy. The rustling sound of these thousands upon thousands of wings beating the air with slow, steady stroke can hardly be compared to anything else in its weird oppressiveness. So to say, it is a little like falling water but may be best likened, perhaps, to a vast invisible broom sweeping the sky. Wow, those are such gorgeous images. And I feel real envy of your grandfather <laughs> you know, reading this book and having this experience. As you were saying, thousands of wings in it, and it feels like what we have today is so, so reduced. When we came in the winter and we were experiencing the rooks roosting here, there were probably several hundred. Mm. Maybe, I don't know, can't remember, maybe up to a thousand? Mm. but certainly, certainly a fraction five, of what they used to five be. Five miles long and a black canopy. Yeah. Imagine a black mm. canopy of rooks flying over you. And these woods that we're in are beech trees about 200 years old. And it's quite interesting that they, there used to be a rookery here and it was deserted several years ago. And I think that coincides with when there was an outbreak of uh, a disease affecting all these trees. In 2015... It was identified as a disease called Ramorum, and that means that the tree trunks and the branches become brittle and the trees are liable to collapse. And we're actually surrounded by the corpses of, some, of many fallen trees. And some have snapped off halfway. I mean, some have been blown down by the wind, and you see the base and the whole tree lying down. But many other branches and trunks have simply snapped due to this disease. So I wonder if the rooks detected 
that the, the twigs were snappy and not so the, the, the trees were not fit for nesting even yes. though they might have still been prepared to roost it so they've actually started nesting probably about a quarter of a mile away half a mile away in some other trees so there are still rooks nesting in the area but there's no longer a big rookery it's such a melancholy idea i think surrounded by the corpses of trees and Feels on the one hand we've got bluebells this morning. We, we, we do have some songbirds singing, but as you say, these broken and snapped yes. dark trees. The beech woods around here that were planted—they're a bit of a monoculture, and they're now stands of mature trees with not much understory. But in the gaps where trees have fallen, you get new things growing. Like right here, there's a row and Anna Hawthorn and some brambles getting ready to grow, and we're standing in this patch of sunshine that is only here because the trees have fallen. And these trees would have been planted by Victorians as a kind of beach plantation. I think it was fashionable at the time to plant beech trees. Quite a lot around here. Yeah. Mm. Around the time of these poems. We're now in kind of the early 1900s, Mm. 1915, you Mm. said. And do you feel there's a kind of shift in the the feeling of the poetry that the Victorians are writing about nature during this time. Absolutely, and I wanted to read from a poem by Thomas Hardy called A Darkling Thrush, which he famously writes at the turn of the century. It's um, a kind of fan de siècle poem that's supposed to reflect where the Victorians are at the end of this great century of, um, as some would have seen it, exploration and empire. What was that word you used? Fan de siècle. Right. <laughs> end of the century is the, okay. French, the French term. French decadence is very fashionable in the 1890s, so I think there's quite a few French terms that, uh, that, okay. make, their, that make their way in. But I think there is a, a sense of perhaps a growing alienation or, or a precarity. I think the faith in nature, that richness and plenitude that we saw in Charlotte Smith and, and Wordsworth with the thousand voices, and it's a bit like the thousands of, of rooks is gone and... I think Thomas Hardy's poem is called A Darkling Thrush and it's an image of, of one thrush um, that's left in it and I think that reduction in a way of, of Wordsworth in his garden listening to this vast symphony of, of birdsong. Perhaps I'll, I'll just read a, a verse from it because yeah. that might give us a, yeah. a sense of it. So this is Thomas Hardy. He's walking outside alone on New Year's Eve. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a fool-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, in blast beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom.
So I think that the scene of the poem, Hardy's wandering in the woods while everyone else is sitting at home next to their coal fires. And I think the air is, is polluted in this poem by coal smoke. And I think that image of the growing gloom, it's not just the, the natural darkness of, the, of one day. I think it's a, a symbolic image for a rapacious century, you know, one in which habitats are destroyed and, and birds are shot for collecting and stuffing in their thousands. But this frail thrush is still singing and it's a very powerful poignant image I, I think of that singing out and standing here we're up above the valley which is full of old mills and houses we can hear quite a lot of traffic noise construction noise but around the time of that poem it would mm. have been possibly even louder with the noises of mills and it would have been smoky and smelly with pollution coming from the mills below us Absolutely. I think we, we think of the Victorian period as perhaps being quiet and pastoral, and I don't think it would be at all. This, this is a very industrial zone. Yeah, and I think because he uses the word blast beruffled to yeah. describe the thrush. Blast beruffled. What yeah. do you think? What, what well, you I think did look up about? the Oxford English Dictionary, to just, which is a very geeky thing I love to do, but to see what that word blast meant in the 19th century, very much associated with industry, like with the furnaces mm. of the factory. And I think the fact that the thrush is linked to this image of, of being blasted. And it's, it's like, not only its feathers, its whole life's being disrupted by all the factories and mills and industrialisation going on around it. But I think, as you say, I mean, it feels like we're, we're still in a similar moment. Like, as We can hear the traffic and, and the trains and the aeroplanes, but we can still hear the birds yes. singing. They will carry on if they can, won't they? Yeah. Also, more positively, the air is now far cleaner than it was, so things like lichens are flourishing making a comeback. Yeah, I think it's very much the the mood of, of our moment as well, that there can be a sense of futility and pessimism, but there is still hope. I think he balances that that really well, that, that flinging of the soul out into the world. I yeah. think it could be a futile or a hopeful gesture. Thanks, Clara, for sharing those poems with us. I think it's been really interesting to understand how poems and other writings from the past can show us what the countryside was like back then and what wild creatures were here and in what numbers before industrialisation. And also, while we've been standing around here, we have actually heard the occasional <laughs> member of the Crow family. <laughs> I think we've heard jackdaws and... Carrying crow. Yeah, carrying crow and rooks. So they are still at least passing through these woods. And I think it, um, the poetry conveys what we're talking about, shifting baseline, the state of nature that's been lost. And also it emotionally connects you to the past, what's been lost, and, and how much we need to really look after the nature that's left. I feel like the poems helped me appreciate the world around me. I, mean, I feel like my journey was to be a poetry scholar and then to to actually go out <laughs> into the, the world. And I think particularly in lockdown, I think it's given me a, that emotional connection with, with birds. I think the art of noticing and observation and curiosity can really be provoked by poetry. OK, because in some of those poems, it's clear that people have dwelled and mm. have noticed the small things... I think as well, the process of detailed observation, whether you're doing it as a poet or a scientist, is a way of building reciprocal relationship with the creatures in the natural world.
Clara, if people wanted to read a bit more about specifically poetry in this area, where's a good place to start? There's an excellent book by Jonathan Bate called The Song of the Earth, which talks about romantic poets' um, relationship at this period, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, I'd also encourage people to read the poetry of Charlotte Smith. Um, you can find a number of her poems on Poetry Foundation, that website. Um, and I know that she's less well-known than Wordsworth, but I think a very rewarding um, and quite accessible poet um, as well. Thank you for having me as a guest. It's, it's been delightful.